I just want to share with you a story, if I may. There was a lady named Andrea. She was a 25-year-old woman, had lots of promise. I mean, she was engaged to a young man who loved her, who had a great career himself. And Andrea, she had recently landed this really high-profile, well-paying position with a brokerage firm in Chicago, and she was doing very, very well. Not too shabby, if you think about it, for a small-town psychology major. But she was prospering. She was doing very, very well for herself, and she had advanced from this rookie on the uh, the workforce, this rookie at her office team. She had advanced from that to someone who was well-trusted and someone that they knew they could count on. This was somebody who had made it to a place of respect among her peers. She, in fact, had made it to the place that she was working with most of the company's great brokers and their best marketers. In fact, she was even working with the CEO himself directly. She proved her competence, and she was rewarded with steady pay raises, salary increases, new responsibilities. Things were going good for her. And Andrea's boss, the, the CEO of the company, he had a very important meeting coming up in, at a very prestigious location in New York City. And his schedule was so packed, of course, that he wasn't planning to fly in until the day of the actual meeting, which was on a Tuesday. So he reached out to Andrea and he said, look, in order for you to lay the groundwork, I want you to go there. I want you to get things prepared. I want you to fly out on Sunday. I want you to go on Monday to the meeting location, get everything ready to go so that when I get there on Tuesday, we're ready to present and we can lock down all this business. I want you to get everything ready. And so Andrea, who was doing very well, was so excited. I mean, this was in such a young career and such a a young life. This was her very first business trip that she had ever made as a young professional. And she was going to go on it alone. This would be her first time. She was really excited. I mean, can you imagine as a 25-year-old, the excitement that you might have? And you want to make sure that you're doing things right. You know, she wanted to make sure sure that she was up for the responsibility that the CEO had given her. So off she went. She had lots of work to do and she was going to get going. So she contacted her fiance and she said, look, I'm going to New York to take care of some business for a couple of days. I'll I'll be back in a few days. And so here she is excited and optimistic and she left O'Hare. She landed in New York. She made her way downtown to the Marriott and she stayed there. On Monday, she jumped right in. She went to this nice office area, and she began to prepare everything for her boss, who would be flying in on Tuesday the next day, which, by the way, happened to be September 11th, 2001. So she was in a conference room, and you can imagine which prestigious location she was in. She happened to be in the World Trade Center. And you know how the story ended, don't you? The meeting never happened. No business was ever conducted. And Andrea died in the World Trade Center seven years after she graduated from Kewaskum High School right here in Wisconsin. And she never went home, just like that. The vibrant young woman with a promising career, with a loving fiancé, with a wonderful family, she was gone. No more phone calls, no more visits at Thanksgiving. Just two days earlier, on Sunday, she had been laughing with her parents, she had been kissing her fiancé goodbye at the airport, and now on Tuesday, 
Well, as you know, this morning we're in the book of James, and we're going to go back to chapter 4, where we're going to finish up our time in chapter 4 this week. And what you're going to see there is another test of the genuineness of our faith. And this morning you're going to see the test of discerning and submitting to the will of God. And this is such an important message for us this morning. I want you to know that life really hasn't changed all that much in the couple thousand years since James wrote his letter to the believing Jews who were scattered throughout the Mediterranean world. They lived just like we do for the most part. I mean, they had to make a living too. Many of them were agrarian people who raised crops and animals, but there were also among them many who were business-minded people who made a living from some sort of trade. They didn't have the ability, of course, as you and I do, to fly an American Airlines-operated Boeing 737 to business trips to New York or wherever they were going, so their, their business trips took a little bit longer. Typically, when they would travel, because they didn't have the ability to fly, they would travel often in, in caravans for protection, and they would make their way to these important cities, which were typically built along heavily trafficked roads or well-traveled seaports, and they would stay there for a period of time, selling their wares, performing a service, whatever it was, and they would go there to get as much money as they could, and then they would go back home for a period of time, they would gather up more of their product, maybe gather up more of their supplies, whatever it was, and then they would head back out for another marketplace. That was life. That's the way it is today, isn't it? It's not any different than what we do now, and I want you to know that there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. If you're like me, if you're a businessman and sometimes you're required to make trips to sell a particular product as part of your employment, I want you to know that that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it at all. And I would tell you that you need to commit yourself to it and you need to do it as unto the Lord. But James, in writing to these people, said there's one thing that you need to make sure that you do. He says, make sure that you are leaving room for the will and the purposes of God. I'm going to take you now to verse 13 in James chapter 4, and I want you to just read along with me. And this is what it says. James starts off by saying, come now. And I do just want to pause just to tell you that this is just a command for attention. It's, it'd be like you hear people say, oh, come on now, or I want you to think about it, or as I often say, maybe a better way to say it would be, listen very closely to me when I say this. You've heard me say that before. That's what James is saying. So let's plug that in. James says, listen very closely to me. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. That sounds just like us, doesn't it? Isn't that what we do? I'm going on a business trip to Minnesota next week. I'll be in New York for the next few days. What for? Well, I'm going there to sell some stuff. I'm going there to make a little bit of money. That's why I'm on my way. And that's what many of you who are here this morning do almost every single week. This is just the secular side of me. This is just the secular or the business side of my life. I have church. I have worship. I have the God side of my life. But during the week, I go out and I make a living, right? Isn't that how it works? Isn't that what we do? And James says, listen up, you people. I want you to pay attention to me, you who go here and go there to make a few bucks. Take a look at verse 14. He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I love summer. How many of you love summer? A lot of hands, yeah. I love summer. In fact, I prefer weather that's you know, maybe in the low to mid-80s, that would be my favorite. But you won't often hear me complain if the weather gets hotter than that. 
You won't ever hear me complain that it's too hot outside. You see, because living in Wisconsin for the last 20 years, I've learned that by January or February, somewhere in there, I would be very, very thankful to have a 90-degree day, right? Isn't that how it works? And so in August, I'm not going to complain about a 90-degree day because I know what's coming in just a few months. I know what is right around the corner. Because usually, by the middle of October, what will happen is I'll wake up and I'll go out to my car to jump in and go to work, and I'm going to see frost on my windshield at some point. And when I see that frost, it's an indicator of, to me, of things that are to come. It's a sign of things that are, are going to be coming. And I'm not sure why I do it. I'm just a weirdo, maybe. But when I see frost in my window, you know what I always do? I always want to see if I can see my breath. And so you know how you, know how you do that? You go, and then you, you look to see if you can see the vapor of your breath. How many of you, I know I'm not the only one that does that. There's a lot of other weirdos in here is what you're saying, right? Yeah. But that's what I do. I breathe out because I want to see the steam that my breath creates. If I'm being honest with you, I get bored with it pretty quickly. It's not like I stand around for hours on end trying to see my breath because it's really not that big of a deal. I mean, if you put it in the greater context of the life of, of an American male who's going to live to be typically 78 to 79 years old, the vapor that I'm able to see from my own breath for all of about a second is kind of a rather fleeting moment or a fleeting satisfaction. So I move on from it pretty quickly. James reminds us that our lives are really no different. Come now, listen closely to me. Our lives are no different than that fleeting breath of steam. It's just a short passing moment. It's just a short passing moment in the context of the history of creation. Do you understand that? You're just a vapor. You're just a short breath. Typically, sad as it may be to think of it, by the third generation following your own, Nobody will even remember your name. There'll be few people who have any memories of you and of your time here. Life is fragile. Life is short. It's here one moment, and it's gone the next. Just ask Andrea's family. I mean, do you think that they care at all about the business deal that she may have made on that Tuesday morning? Do you? Do you think that they care at all about the millions of dollars that Andrea may have locked down in the World Trade Center that day? I bet not. I bet if you drive up to Kawaskum and you ask her family, what they'd tell you is that they would want the steam of Andrea's breath to have just lasted one more fraction of a lifetime. James' older brother Jesus shared a parable with us in Luke chapter 12. Beginning in verse 16, this is what he said. He said, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax eat, drink, be merry, enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Who will they go to? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What is wrong with that farmer having a really nice harvest? Anything? 
What do you think was wrong with the farmer saying, you know what, I'm going to build a bigger barn because my barn's not big enough. Was there anything wrong with that? And I love how it wasn't just I'm going to build another barn. It's I'm going to tear down my old one and I'm going to build a larger one so I don't have to take up any more of my real estate for crops. I can continue to plant more crops. I mean, that's the message I get from it. But is there anything wrong with the guy actually building a big barn? Nothing at all. There's nothing wrong with that. So what's the problem? The problem is that this man has determined that he is his own master. Read through that passage and count the number of times that you see him say, I will, I will, I will do this. I will tear down my barn. I will store my grain. I will say, I will eat, I will drink. The rich man's problem was that he did not leave room for the will of God. Do you see? It's my will. It's I will do this. I will do that. He did not leave room for the will of God. He did not say, God, thank you for the great blessing. What would you have me do with all of these great crops? He did not say, God, thank you for the great job. What would you have me to do to honor you on my business trip to New York? You're a vapor. You're a breath. You may not even come home from your business trip. Your will, your intent, your desire is secondary to the will and the purposes of God. Listen closely, friends. Your will is secondary to the will and the purpose of God. Do you get that? I'm going to say it one more time. It's a very important thing for you to understand. And believers need to understand this. It is proof that you are a believer. Your will is secondary to the will and to the purposes of God. Who is man that he should take the place of God and plan without the counsel of God? Man who is born of a woman is just a few days. He comes out like a flower and he withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. Job 14.1. For my days pass away like smoke, Psalm 102.3. My days are a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you, Psalm 39.5. But the counsel of the Lord stands how long? Forever. And the plans of His last how long? Through all generations. Friends, listen to me. Commit yourselves first to the Lord and His will. Commit yourself first to His will and to His purposes, and He will take care of your will. He will take care of the desires of your heart. So I guess the real question then is this. What's the will of God? Right? Isn't that the bottom line? If I'm going to do the will of God, then I need to know the will of God. How do I determine what the will of God is for my life? Is it God's will for me to take this job? Is it God's will for me to go on this business trip? How do I discern that? Is it God's will for me to marry this girl? Is it God's will for me to go to this church or to leave that one? How do I discern these things? And I want to help you with that this morning. Listen, to do that, I'm going to take you to several places in Scripture where Scripture very clearly says, this is God's will. I'm going to take you there. And as we do that, we're going to begin to understand what God's will is for our lives. John MacArthur wrote a little booklet, which I think is a fantastic tool in helping to discern the will of God. It's called Found God's Will. If you'd like to read a short little booklet that is very helpful in that, this would be an outstanding read for you. But first, I want you to know That if God has a will for your life, if God has a purpose for your life, it stands to reason that he would want you to know it. 
doesn't it? If God has a will for your life, I think he wants you to know it. It does absolutely no good for God to have a will and a purpose for your life and then to hide it from you. It does no good for God to have a purpose for your life or a will and to force you to wander aimlessly through life trying to look under this rock and under that rock trying to guess what the will of God is. I want you to know that he has revealed his will to us in the pages of scripture and it's really quite simple. And so if you want some tips for discerning the will of God, I'm going to encourage you, just write these down this morning. Write these down and take them home with you. We're going to start in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and this is what it says. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants, and most translations say, and it's the same verb, who will all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Do you see it there? Jesus Christ, God our Savior, wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So first, it is God's will that you would be saved. It is God's will that you would know the truth. Listen to me. That's his will. If you have not come to the place in your lives that you have reached a point of saving faith through your knowledge of Jesus Christ and submission to his lordship in your life, you need to know that you are not living in the will of God. You are outside the will of God. You need to know that. You're disobedient. And you are not living according to God's will. You are, if that is you, living in rebellion against the will of God. God's will is for you to be saved. Let's move on. I want to take you to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 17. And you'll remember this from several months ago. And Paul wrote this. He said, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So Paul here says, if you don't understand the will of the Lord, you are foolish. Do you see that? It's foolish for you to not know the will of God. So he says, don't be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. And what is that? We'll take a look at verse 18. He says, don't get drunk with wine because that's debauchery. But on the other hand, do what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is God's will. It's God's will for you that you be filled with or controlled by the Holy Spirit as we explained it to you when we were back in chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians. It's God's will that you would allow the Holy Spirit to compel you to be the force that drives you forward in every aspect of your life. Don't be under the influence of alcohol, he says, but in the same way, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Allow him to be the one who shapes and informs your behavior and your decision making. So it's God's will that you be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to take you now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. How much more plain does it get than this? For this is the will of God. Well, what is the will of God? Your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So this is the third step. It is God's will that you be sanctified. God wants you to be, the word in the Greek is hagiosmos. He wants you to be holy. It's your purity he desires. It is his will that you be growing in your faith. It is will that you would be growing in spiritual maturity, that you would weed out evil behaviors in your life, that you would become pure and holy in your faith. And then he goes on to say to the Thessalonians specifically, as it pertains to your sexuality, I want you to know that it's God's will that we be pure and holy, especially, according to 1 Thessalonians, as it pertains to your sexuality. Friends, if you're involved in sexual immorality, if you're involved in sexual uncleanness, if you're committing sexual sin, if you're involved in sex outside of your marriage, if you're involved in sex with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or in an extramarital affair, 
You're living outside the will of God and you're inviting His chastisement. You're inviting His correction. If you're involved in other sexual sins, whether it's homosexuality, pornography, or any other form of sexual perversion of God's original intent, I want you to know that you're living outside the will of God. But I also want you to know that we're not just talking about sexual sin here, although that is specifically mentioned in this portion of Scripture. But we're talking about your sanctification. Do you understand that? Listen, we're talking about spiritual maturity. Sexual immorality is the fruit of immaturity. And he says, this is the will of God that you be sanctified, that you be spiritually mature. God wants you to be advancing in your spiritual maturity. God wants you to be advancing. He wants you to be advancing in moral purity. He wants you to be advancing in holiness. And friends, listen to me. If you are not allowing the Word of God to prune you, if you are not allowing the Word of God to cause you to grow in your faith, you are are not in the will of God. Do you see that? This is very important. If you are not allowing the Word of God to cause you to grow in your faith, you are not living in the will of God. So what that means is if you are coming to church and if you are hearing the Word of God and you're walking out the door and you are not doing it, you are not in the will of God. The will of God cleans you, John 15, 3. It causes you to grow, 1 Peter 2, 2. It empowers you to overcome the evil one, 1 John 2, 14. If you are not taking action on the Word of God and becoming more pure in lifestyle, if you're not becoming more mature in your faith, friends, you are outside the will of God. Do you understand? And I'm going to share with you now a fourth aspect of the will of God from 1 Peter chapter 2. And I believe that this one is particularly relevant to us today. I want you to follow along closely with me here in beginning in verse 13. Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him, the antecedent for that being the emperor, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now listen, for this is the will of God. What is the will of God? That by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And how do you do that? You do that, go back to verse 13, by being subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's the message. It is the will of God that we silence the ignorance of foolish people. How in this case does he tell us that we're supposed to do that? He says that we do it by subjecting ourselves and submitting ourselves to every human institution. Specifically, Peter mentions the emperor. It's actually the word basileu. It's the word king, which is nothing more than to say the highest authority in your land. So in our case, who is the highest authority in our land? It's president. Right now it happens to be President Trump. Who else does he mention specifically in this passage? He mentions hegemon. Who are hegemon? Those are the governors. Those are the people who are the next tier down from the highest level of rule in our country. They're the ones who lead provinces. They're the ones who lead states. Who is that for us? It's a governor, right? It's a governor Evers. So listen to me. Peter is telling us that we hupotasso those people. Do you remember what that means? We hupotasso. We talked about that word just a few weeks ago when we were in verse 7. And remember, it's a military term. And he's saying that we submit and that we line ourselves up under their leadership, beginning with the president, then with the governor, and all the way down to your local municipalities. When we're in verse 7. 
I shared with you my experience as a new Army recruit in Fort Leonard Wood, and I told you that I learned very quickly to line up to Hupo Tasso under my leaders. I followed their direction. I submitted to their leadership in my life. As a new recruit, there are consequences if you don't submit. You don't undermine. You don't subvert. You submit. That's what the Word teaches. And unfortunately, I think in America, it's often seen as a badge of honor or a a badge of courage to refuse to submit to your leadership. But I want you to know that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you submit. Oh, but Scott, that guy's a Republican. That one is a Democrat. He doesn't have the right to do that. He's this. He's that. Friends, listen to me. Unless your civic leadership is requiring of you that you do something in clear contradiction to the principles and the requirements of Scripture, you submit to them. That's the instruction of Scripture. If the government tells you, as it told Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to bow down before and to worship a golden image or anyone other than God, don't do it. Let them throw you in the furnace. Don't do that. If they tell you, as they told Daniel, stop praying to God, don't listen to them. Let them throw you in the lion's den, right? If they tell you, as they did in Acts chapter 4, stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what the Sanhedrin said to Peter and John in Acts 4. And if they come to you and they say, stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ, I want you to know that you should go ahead and you should do it anyway, and you should allow them to whip you and to throw you into prison for that. But if they tell you, for the next 60 days you need to wear a mask when you go to church to stop the spread of COVID, submit to them. Submit to their leadership and put on your mask. And worship at the top of your lungs. Worship as loud as you possibly can so that you can be heard over the top of your mask, right? Why would we allow them to do that to us, Scott? Why? We have to join together. We have to resist. They don't have the authority to do that. Well, what does Peter say? Why does Peter tell us that we need to do it? He says, you do it for whose sake? Look at this. For the Lord's sake. Do you see that in the very first verse there? We do it for the Lord's sake. We do it so that we don't damage our testimony for Jesus Christ. The world is filled with foolish people. The world is filled with people who are ignorant of Scripture and of the freedom that you and I have in Christ. This world is filled with foolish people who are just waiting for an opportunity to discredit you and to find hypocrisy in your life. And when you stand shoulder to shoulder with unbelievers who are thumbing their noses at civic leadership, you are saying, my personal rights are more important to me than the authority and the reputation of God. Remember, those leaders have been established by God, Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from whom? From God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Friends, listen to me. Those authorities, whether you like them or not, have been appointed by God. So when you resist them, when you refuse to submit to them, you are refusing to submit to God. When you stand with unbelievers in opposition to civic leaders, people will begin to recognize you as no different than the rest of the world. And your testimony of the life-changing work of Jesus Christ will be destroyed. Your testimony on behalf of the life-transforming work of Christ is more important than your personal rights. If you don't like the president, don't vote for him. But don't disobey him. If you don't like the governor, vote for the other guy. But don't destroy your testimony. 
There is provision, my friends, in America to vote for the people that you think most accurately represent your position on civic issues. Vote for them, but don't disobey them and refuse to submit to them if you don't agree with them. Allow the world's system to function the way the world's system will function. Spoiler alert for you, it's all falling apart. Ultimately, the world's system is not going to last, whether it's Republican or Democrat, it's just not. I've read the last page of the book and I know what happens. Allow the world system to rule the world system. The legislative and judicial systems will insert themselves into the debate and the world system will work the way the world system works. God's system is different and that's where your attention needs to be focused. Did you hear that? God's system is different and that's where our focus belongs because we're not citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven, aren't we? Focus your attention on the kingdom of God. Focus your attention on your sanctification. I'm just going to ask you this, but I wonder, what do you think would happen to your testimony if believers right here in our church focus their energy as much on advancing the kingdom of God as they do on advancing the political agenda of whatever preferred political party they happen to like? The world system will take care of itself. God established those authorities, and until they tell you to do something that's not consistent with the requirements of Scripture, you submit to them as if they were speaking the words of God, whether you like them or not, don't allow the ignorant people of this world the opportunity to discredit your testimony. That's the will of God. That's what the Word says. Finally, Peter says, it's better for you to suffer if that's God's will for doing good. So it's the will of God that you be such a strong and dynamic Christian that people take note of you. It's God's will that you be so dynamic in your faith that people take note of you and begin to give you a little bit of flack and you begin to catch a little bit of resistance for serving God. That's His will for you. Now listen closely. You take care of those five things and I'll guarantee you that you don't have to worry about what job you take, where you go to school, who you're going to marry. You're going to get those things right. You see? If you're doing those five things, if you're just delighting yourself in the Lord, He'll give you the desires of your heart because you're going to be desiring the right things. Do you see that? When you begin to really understand the will of God, you will really begin to understand what James means in verse 15. Take a look at this. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or we will do that. At this point now, friends, I've shared with you the will of God. You all know the will of God. See? We've gone through it. You understand what the will of God is. You're responsible for that. At this point, we know the will of God. We're pursuing the will of God. So it's easy for us to say, if it's the Lord's will, I will do this. Or if it's the Lord's will, I will do that. But now I want you to follow closely. Look at verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. People who don't do the will of God can basically be divided into two categories. There are those who are ignorant of God who don't do His will. And there are those who know God and they know His will and they don't do it anyway. You see? There's the one category, like the man in Luke 16, who doesn't get it. He thinks he's in control of his own destiny. He doesn't know the will of God, and so he arrogantly walks around saying, I will go on a trip. I will make money. I will sell my goods. I will build bigger barns. I will. I will. Whatever I want to do, I will do. I'm in control. And so sinfully, this group of people make their plans without any provision for God at all. They don't know God's will and they don't do God's will. That's group number one. Now listen, there's a second group, the one that I mentioned to you, and that is what 
each of you belong to when you do not do the will of God. Those are the people who know the will of God because they've been taught the will of God and they just simply choose to ignore it. And I can tell you that as a young adult, that's exactly who I was. I did not care. I had gone to church my whole life. Three times a week, I heard the man preaching Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night. I was there faithfully three times a week. I had been there my whole life. I had heard the word over and over again, but I reached the point where I just did not care. I was going to do whatever I wanted to do. I don't think that's uncommon. I think you see it a lot in teens and young adults. They come to church maybe because their parents make them. They hear the message. From time to time, they might even have phases of their life where they're taking notes. But they know the will of God because they've heard it. They know the good that God desires for them to do. They know what the right thing is, but as soon as they have the opportunity to get away, they get up, they take off, and they completely ignore what they've heard. That's where I was. Have any of you ever been there? And in fairness, I do want to say it's not just teens and young adults that do that. Friends, I want you to know, There are many of you who are sitting here right now, and you may have the appearance of somebody who really has grown and mature in your faith, and I want you to know that you're not fooling the Lord. He knows that you know the the truth and you're not doing it. That's all of us. I know what's right. I'm just not doing it. I don't feel like it. I enjoy this more. I enjoy that more. And James has something to say to you if that's you. Take a look at verse 17. He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's what? Sin. Well, wait, what are you talking about? I I didn't commit a sin. I didn't actively participate in sin. But friends, look, if you know God's will, if you know God's instruction, and now you do, as I've said, it is sin if you don't do it. When you reach the judgment seat of God, you're not going to find any comfort in the fact that you may not have actively participated or pursued sin. The fact that you know what is right and the fact that you know the will of God means that you are in sin simply by virtue of not doing what you know to be right. Just living without God is sin. Just leaving God out of your plans for you is sin because you know. You know what the right thing to do is. And so for you to leave Him out, for you to know that you're supposed to center your life and your plan on God's, for you to know that and to do anything else, friends, is sin. Do you see that? My message to you today is that you need to acknowledge the will of God. Acknowledge His sovereignty. Acknowledge that every breath of your short life is an opportunity to honor God by honoring His will and submitting to Him whether you like it or not. You don't have to like it all the time. I love what Jesus said in John thirteen seventeen, And I can't think of any more fitting way to end our time in the Word of God this morning, so we're going to end it with this. He said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you what? If you do them. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. Friends, do you want blessing and happiness in your life? Do you? I do. Leave room for the will of God in your life. Commit yourself to the will of God. Not your own rights. Commit yourself to the will and the purpose of God. Do it and be blessed. Do it and be truly happy with every breath that you're able, with every breath that you have remaining in your life. May I encourage you to do the will of God Sing of the goodness of God. For you who know this, to do anything else is sin. Father, I thank you for your mercy and I thank you for your grace. 
I thank you, Lord, for the blessing that is to be found in doing your will. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts have been challenged this morning. And if there are those who are here this morning who can say that truly they know the, the will of God for their lives, but they just don't feel like doing it, I pray, God, that you would convict them of that sin. And I pray, Lord, that you'd bring course correction in their lives. If there's anyone here, Lord, who maybe they've never heard or discerned the will of God before, I pray that you would, now that we've shared that with them, that it would take root in their hearts and they would be responsible for what they've heard this morning. And I pray, God, if if there's anyone here who is not in a place of saving faith, that you would bring them to that point. Because we know first and most importantly, that's the will of God. Now, God, as we move forward under leadership that we may or may not support, I pray that you would give us humble hearts and submissive hearts whose focus is on the kingdom of God and not the kingdoms of this world. But Lord, I pray that you would teach us to commit ourselves to seeking you and your kingdom first because we know that you'll take care of everything else. 